0: All right, well, we'll start off with a couple of announcements. First of all, last night, I know this is confusing. Last night, I started the Chafer the, uh, course on church history. For the, those gutsy people who were here, because the first hour of any college or graduate school course, if you remember, is just going through that exciting thing called the syllabus and the bibliography and all of those things. But we had a good, nice little group of seven or eight people who were here uh, last Last night, but we will not be doing that again next week or the next week or the next week and there are one two of those. The reason is is because the way this was originally set up, I was supposed to be leaving to go to Kiev tomorrow, and I would not be here the next two monday nights and on the twenty fifth is when the, sem- the the semester actually begins, so we 've already recorded the first class for the twenty fifth and so it, we won't resume until February the first. And you should have assumed from what you just heard, if you'd, and if you didn't get the email, that uh, I am not leaving for Kiev tomorrow. That has a, you know, sometimes when God closes the door, he he shuts it all the way hard, and there just isn't any ro- wiggle room left over. And so <clears throat> I could not test negative to to the virus, and that doesn't mean anything for the, some of you who are going, <gasps> it, it, because the R, what the test does, the PCR test tests to see if you have the virus RNA in your system. Does doesn't test is whether or not it's alive or dead. And so, doctor after doctor, and article after article, will tell you that you will, sl- after you have it, you can slough off dead virus cells that will not infect anybody for up to two months, which means that you're going to test, uh, you're going to test uh, positive for maybe up to two months. And uh, in fact, uh, somebody uh, emailed me something from the. Tennessee Government website for employers telling them they can 't use the PCR test to determine when people can come back to work because they 're going to be non infectious for quite a while before they will test uh, they will test negative, but governments and airlines and others haven 't figured that out yet, and so we do live in the devil 's world, so i 'm not going anywhere. Uh, having said that, I will be here Thursday night and we 'll be back in Second Peter. And then Sunday, Jim Myers, who is here, he's back. He used to come back during the summer, and now he comes back in the winter. So he it was scheduled to speak on Sunday morning, and it's always good for us to hear when we can from our missionaries. So he is going to be speaking Sunday morning. So that kind of keeps you up to date on everything. Also, mark your calendars. February the 14th, Valentine's Day, is when we're going to have our annual congregational meeting. And then, of course, the Chafer Conference is coming up March 8th through 10th, and we need volunteers. We need a lot of folks to help. And we don't know how it's going to go this year because we don't know how this virus is going to affect things. We provide lunch for people and everything. Now, we had the Chafer Conference, not not the Chafer Conference, pre-trib conference in Dallas at the hotel, and that worked out just fine. And no one, to anyone's knowledge, uh, got the COVID virus, so we're going to have to uh, practice some distancing and everything, but by the second day at the pre trip conference, you couldn't tell that anybody was doing anything. I don't necessarily say that's a good idea, because I know of too many cases where they're h- including one church uh, <clears throat> close to us uh, that is doctrinally and not otherwise where a bunch of people were at a New Year's Eve party and a bunch of people got it. And so you, we just have to be careful. You, you can't just assume that because everybody's there that everything's okay. So I don't know how the conference is going to look, but we're going to have the conference, and we'll take all the proper precautions uh, that that we can. And also one other announcement is on the Israel trip, uh, all there so far. All I know is they're going to require the same thing that was required of me: is that it, getting a negative PCR test before you can, within 72 hours of departure. They're not, as of yet, requiring people to get a vaccination. That was that was a speculation at one time, and nobody really knows. They 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 are officially going to open Israel to tourism. They're saying in April. So if you're interested, a number of people have sent in in, and requested information, and so we're going to be able to do some some things that I haven't done in a long time because I think that um, we're going to try to make it a a little bit longer, one or two days longer, but not go outside of Israel. You know, we've done where we've added two or three days. We've gone to Petra. We've gone other places, but this will just give us a little more time in Israel. And so that's that's uh, I think that's it for announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way, by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, ready to study the word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And that means we need to confess sin in silent prayer. And so we'll have a few moments of silent silent prayer for you to take advantage of, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're thankful that we can be here this evening and just to study your word. We know that your word is sufficient. That means it is enough to give us a framework for thinking about every issue in life. And when we come to the Old Testament, we see a lot of different kinds of literature. We see different uh, uh, things from the Psalms, hymns of praise and thanksgiving and confession and and lament. And Father, now we're going to begin a new study in Judges, a, a book that really does speak to The situation we face in this country, describing what happened to Israel in the ancient world as they succumbed to the pressures and the enticements of pagan thought and compromised and led to the uh, inner rot and destruction of the nation, the loss of freedom, and it uh, got to the point where they weren't any different from anybody else. And Father, we see that in our own nation, and so there's a lot of lessons here that you have set up for us, and it's important to learn this book and to study it and to think through what we should do as believers in such a relativistic, atheistic, anti-Christian, anti-God culture. And we pray that you would give us wisdom as as a result of this study. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, we are going to study the book of Judges. Now, some of you may have listened to the series I taught 20 years ago. It was in 2000 I began a series when I was at Preston City Bible Church. And in the 20 years prior to that, I think I taught Judges 8 or 9 or 10 times. And because I was a pastor of two or three different churches, taught in Sunday school, and when I was in my third year at Dallas, back in those days, Dallas Seminary had what they called the Lay Institute on Monday nights, and this gave uh, students who were interested in going on into perhaps teaching in academia opportunities to teach uh, this Lay Institute course. And rarely, but sometimes they did Uh, accept third year students to teach and I was accepted to teach that year and I was teaching on the book of Judges and I really had not had time before I knew about this to really study the book of Judges and uh, I had surveyed and done other things but Sometimes teaching a book, you learn more about it than at any other time, just like anything else in life. When you go teach something, you really, really learn it. And I ended up writing my master's thesis on the on Jephthah's vow in Judges chapter 11. And so that's always, it's always been a book that I've been very, very interested in for a lot of different reasons and have always enjoyed teaching it. And several people have said, well, you taught this back in 2000, why are you teaching it again? Somewhat facetiously, I've said, so you don't know any pastors who have taught some books four, five, six times over 30 years? We can all think of at least one or two that have done that. And um, I've learned one or two things since 2000. And I've been to Israel, which I'd never been before. So there's just a lot of different things related to archeology, span related to history, related to politics, related to uh, the Mosaic law and just what's going on here that I've learned over the last 20 years or so. And so I think it's time to revisit it, especially as we see the cultural collapse that's taking place uh, in America at this particular time. So in this slide, we'll get a new image that will go with that, but I use the one that's with the 2000 series just to have something for a title slide. And tonight I'm going to do an overview of this book. We're going to go through all uh, all the chapters in one night, and that's so that you can get this bird's-eye view of this book. And the theme of the book is that... Uh, stated in the very last verse of the book, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. A, a Just an absolutely perfect statement of moral relativism. This isn't a good thing. This is a very bad thing that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Actually, two of the times it's mentioned, the verse begins, there was no king in Israel. What that means is they had rejected God as their king under the Mosaic law. It was a theocracy, and God was their king. And by saying there was no king in Israel, what they are saying is two things. The, the kingship hadn't begun yet. Saul hadn't become king yet, but they had rejected God as their king. And in God's place, they had substituted themselves, and so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what we see as a subtitle for the book and for the whole series is the phrase I have at the bottom of the slide. It is a picture of how moral relativism destroys a nation. The pictures that we see of people in the book of Judges that we have grown up uh, hearing about in Sunday school and sometimes in church People like, like Deborah and Barak, people like Gideon and Jephthah and Samson, we've heard all these stories, all encapsulated in a very, very positive framework. But if you read the book of Judges as it was intended, it's not necessarily a positive thing. It doesn't paint these guys with a bright colors showing how wonderful they are the picture is really of deterioration and the degradation and the paganization of the people and the leadership so the reason we get this good idea this optimistic idea about these people in judges is is from hebrews 11 and i just thank god that this is this is here because this is a real testimony to grace one day you and i are going to be standing at the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to be evaluated. And I don't know about you, but I can look at my life and be pretty hard and say, Man, I'm just not going to show up too well when I get to the judgment seat of Christ. There, there's a whole lot more f- failures than there were successes, and I'm maybe the only one who knows that, but you know, it's not going to go well at the judgment seat of Christ. And then you read Hebrews and you realize what absolute failures some of these people were 95% of the time. And here they are in this, what some call the hall of faith chapter. It is, it is a hall of heroes because at one point in their life when everything was at stake, they trusted God. They might have really, like Samson, nothing good is said about Samson in the book of, of Judges. Not one thing positive. And yet we get here, and here he's listed. So so God's evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ for us is, is not going to be quite as harsh as your judgment of yourself would be or others might be of you. Because God looks at Samson, and he sees that at some point Samson trusted God. And Jephthah, look at this in verse 32, and what more shall we say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Gideon who led the nation into idolatry. And Barak, who was a wimp of a man who wouldn't go into battle trusting the Lord. He had to have Deborah go along with him. And Samson, not a good thing said about him, a womanizer. He violated his Nazarene vow every chance he could. And he is just a a spiritual loser, self-absorbed, willful, goes against every command that God had for him. And yet here he shows up, Samson and Jephthah. Jephthah, we're going to study Jephthah, and there's controversy over it. But as I wrote my master's thesis some years ago, and a number of scholarly articles have been published since then confirming everything that I wrote, Samson, according to the language of the text, offered his daughter as a burnt offering to God. And here he is. Why? Because at another point, he trusted God. And so he was a man of faith. And that's why the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, that refers to to Daniel, of course, quenched the violence of fire that was... Uh, Uh, Daniel's three friends escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. That is Isaiah, his cousin, is the king, Manasseh. And he is so evil at that point, he has uh, Isaiah executed by having him sawn in two. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. See, that's how God evaluates them. He knows we have a sin nature. He knows Christ died for every single sin. Those aren't the issue. The issue is not what you did wrong, but what you did right. And just a little bit, apparently, seems to make you a hero in God's eyes. You have fulfilled that. Um, And we read in verse 39, And all these, Jephthah, Gideon, Samson, all these obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, that is the promise of the land in the Old Testament. And so take heart as we go through Judges a lot of people say well if on light of Hebrews 11 how can you say all those bad things about these people because that's what the writer of Judges do he's not he's not looking at what they did good he is indicting the nation the people and the leadership for their moral relativism, their abandonment of God, the violation of the Mosaic Covenant, their antinomianism, a word that you'll be quite familiar with if you're not already, that means they were against the law. They were just making up whatever they wanted to do. Our world today in Western Western civilization in the United States is governed by antinomians. You can just go through a list of Congress. It doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on. They're all antinomians. That is the spirit of our age and has been since the 60s. We just want to make up the law the way we want it as we go along and not do what's right because it's right, not stick to the letter of the Constitution, not stick to the letter of Scripture. We want to just uh, make it up, make it mean whatever uh, we want it to mean. And in case you doubt that, Okay, just in case you you're uh, you have been asleep like Rip Van Winkle for the last forty or fifty years, and you don't realize that we live in an antinomian age, an age of rank immorality, where good is called evil, where right is called wrong, and wrong is called right, and evil is called good. Then listen to this. I'm going to read parts of this because it's just it just so deliciously crazy that you need to pay attention to it this is an article that came out december 17th 2020 on the wellandgood.com website and it is entitled 2021 heralds the new age of aquarius here's what five astrologers want you to know about it are you ready This is so insightful. You've got to understand, this is how everybody who lives around you thinks. Unfortunately, this is how some of your children and grandchildren think. This is how your siblings think. This is how your nieces and nephews think. And they think you are nuts, okay? So this is written by Mary Grace Garris, and she starts off saying, you know how sometimes in order to start fresh, everything first needs to completely fall apart? That's basically been the energy of the pandemic-laden year, which is finally coming to a close and bringing us from the end of the age of Pisces to the beginning of the transformative age of Aquarius. Yes, the age of Aquarius is in the dawning of the age of Aquarius, featured in that catchy bop from the musical Hair. But what is the age of Aquarius actually? An astrological age, I didn't know this, I'm sure you didn't either, shifts about every 2,150 years when the Earth's rotation moves into a new zodiac sign around the spring, spring equinox. Now there's some debate about when the age of Pisces ends and the true age of Aquarius begins. What I'm reading here is this may not be the end of the age of Pisces and it may not be the beginning of the age of Aquarius, but I like what this means, so I'm going to I'm going to go with it even if it's wrong because I'm antinomian, and I'm not going to believe in any absolutes. I'm just going to go with whatever makes me feel good. And so she goes on in that vein for a couple of paragraphs, and then she says, The age of Pisces shaped many belief systems, but now it's time to bring our practices into a way of life that keeps us connected, not segregated, to create a foundation that can bring us into a new age, says Karina Chrysler transformational astrologer. Quote, This year was largely the work of Pluto and Uranus. I didn't know they had volition and could accomplish things. Where any structures built on old traditions were dismantled, Pluto exposed many of Saturn's structures for our personal evolution, but a series of transits will push us towards the Aquarian influence. Below, learn about Aquarian energy that'll guide this forthcoming era, then get intel from astrologers about the age of Aquarius and what it is and what it means for you in 2021. But before we deep dive, before we deep dive into answering what the age of Aquarius is and means as an era, let's revisit its energy and the common traits that those born under the sunshine sign share. Aquarians channel from the collective consciousness and ether and bring the intangible to life with their creations. They're making things up, creating things out of nothing. This is said by Chrysler. They often know what we need before it's needed. And their intention, although they sometimes can seem detached, is typically for the greater good of humanity, even if they're absolute nut jobs. Their intentions are good. My mother always said the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and I think she was right. The age of Aquarius follows a similar progressive forward-thinking we versus I mentality, listen to this, mentality of visionary, rebellious, innovative, and eccentric Aquarians. In other words, they're antinomian. It focuses on humanitarian pursuits, of valuing each person's individuality, holding and taking care of each other as a unit, and also disrupting the system. As Adam Cesse, astrologer and creator of Lilith Astrology, if you don't know the name Lilith, that name is often associated with a demon in occult literature. A Creator of Lilith Astrology points out, there will be a major shift in power dynamics in this era. And this is what he says. It's so insightful. For eons, the power has rested in traditional, oppressive, hierarchical structures, and their beliefs dictated our reality. Read Christianity in the Bible. He says, in the age of Aquarius, the power is turning over to the individual and giving the freedom for you to choose your own reality based on what aligns with your soul. The key verse in Judges says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the same thing that he's saying. This isn't this wonderful that we get to start this age of Aquarius and everybody can do what's right in their own eyes because what matters is their viewpoint. So don't you think from this that we can see that the book of Judges is targeting 21st century America? We are right in the center of the bull'seye. So let's look at this book that is not taught that often in many churches, and when it is, I don't think a lot of people really understand the framework of it, because in today's world, so many pastors want everything to be upbeat and positive, and there's rarely anything in this book, especially after you get past the first three or four chapters that is going to be all that upbeat and positive, it is teaching some hard lessons about what happens when God is removed from the life of a nation. So let's look at the outline, just the basic structure of Judges. The word Judges, we'll talk more about this when we drill down into some more detail, is a Hebrew word that it was wrongly translated into English as judges because when you and I think of a judge, we think of a legal magistrate sitting in a courtroom who is rendering decisions where people disagree with each other or determining the guilt or innocence of somebody who is accused of a crime. We think of it as a, as a judicial function. But that's not what the word Shafatim means in Hebrew it often, when you look at it in uh, other contexts and you look at what those people did, it refers more to a tribal leader, a chieftain, or someone who uh, is a, a military commander who is taking charge of the community in order to deliver from the enemy, and that 's what we see used a lot in in judges is rather than describing them as judges they 're described as deliverers, and the word yasha," which is a word we often associate with salvation, spiritual salvation, because that 's the root for the name yeshua jesus that that it often, as I pointed out in our studies in psalms often refers to just physical deliverance from from sickness, physical deliverance from foreign oppression, from enemies, from those who wish to do us harm. And so that's really uh, how we should look at this. Uh, one, one commentator who's an excellent Hebrew scholar says it should have been called uh, the book of tribal leaders. And that communicates a lot more to people what it is than calling it the book of Judges. So there's basically three sections in this book of Judges. The first section is chapter 1-1 to 3-6. In 1-1 to 3-6, we have uh, the overview of the book, the basic fundamentals of what we're going to see in the book and as you go through that section that introduction to the book it's going to talk at first at the beginning how israel uh, won a great spiritual victory that's how it starts at the beginning of chapter 1 but th- by the time you get down to the end of chapter 1 the, you're no longer talking about tribes who have been in the conquest under joshua have been they have you're no longer talking about those who were successful We think of the early part of Judges and the conquest. We think of the victories at Jericho, the victories at Ai, uh, the victories at Gibeon, other victories in the north and the south, and how under Joshua they took control of the major cities, the major population areas, and then they began to deal with the mopping up operations in all of the smaller villages and towns. And that's where things began to fall apart. They did well initially But when God has given them a command to kill, in some cases, every man, woman, child, and in some cases, some of the beasts, then that made it difficult for them to do what God said to do. And their experience of guilt and sorrow and not willing to do what God said to do led to tragic consequences. It's a variation on the principle I've reminded you of many times, That truth is determined not by how we feel, but by what God says. And often what we feel, what we experience, is diametrically opposed to what the Word of God says. And the issue for us is, are we going to believe the Word of God and use the Word of God to judge and evaluate our feelings, our emotions, and our experiences? Or are we going to let our feelings, emotions, experiences, and in some cases our intellect determine what the Word of God says? That's the issue. And so when you're out there, you can understand this, I can understand this. When you're out there and you've been told by God that you have to kill every man, woman, and child, and you're the soldier out there with the sword and you have to do this, you're probably thinking, I don't know why I need to do this. And if you don't have the spiritual maturity to do what God says to do and be the executioner, then it's going to lead to problems. And that's exactly what happened. Israel went from spiritual victory at the beginning of the book to the end of the book, Samson is actually worse than the Philistines. And when we get into the two appendices at the end of the book, where we have the really bizarre story about the Levite with his concubine, and the concubine is gang-raped in Gibeah, which is later where Saul is from. And she dies as a result of that. And then he, in order to alert the nation to the fact that there is something wrong, he cuts her body into 12 pieces and sends the body parts around to the 12 nations to call them to battle. That's just bizarre. But the writer saves the real kicker for the very end and you don't get it in English because they they base it on the masoretic text but it's very clear the the person who is the levitical priest is the grandson of Moses and that's the picture that they have deteriorated so much that they're now acting worse than the pagans because they've gotten away from the word, so this is the flow of the book of Judges: how Israel goes from spiritual victory to being worse than the Canaanites. It starts with incomplete obedience in chapter one, and then they begin to compromise more and more, and they oh we don 't need to kill all these canaanites let 's just enslave them let 's live next to them, and they become uh, all caught up with with the um, living with the Israelites until eventually uh, when you get to the end of the first chapter, uh, we read that the tribe of Dan is unable to even take control of the territory that God gave to them. And the Amorites uh, basically kick them out. And finally, the the tribe of Dan has to go. And that's part of what the story in one of the appendices, they have to go back up to uh, to t- what becomes dan it 's later it was rig- originally uh, uh, I forget the name of what it was originally, but it's it 's called Dan most of the time in scripture. we read that the uh, territory of Israel is from Dan to Beersheba, and so they go up there and they have this priest who had had the uh, affair with the concubine, and he comes along that is a grandson of Moses and because he's a grandson of Moses, they set him up as a priest and he builds a, a a a temple there for idol worship. And this just leads them into all kinds of ho- hor- horrible things uh, up there in uh in Dan. So the compromise eventually leads to the dis- the f- complete failure of the people spiritually and their their destruction so this section from one one down to chapter three is the section that really is uh down to three six is the is the introduction and describes what's going on and so i'm going to take just a second and just highlight a couple of things because they tell us uh what's going on or actually wait let me let me finish this and we'll come back to that so that creates a series of cycles of discipline which we'll look at in just a minute Then we get to the core part of the book from chapter 3, verse 7, which begins, So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it goes to the end of the uh, Samson episode 1631. And where we see there is that the leaders are paganized. They start with the first one, Othniel, who's the best. He's the one about whom nothing bad is said. And then you go from Othniel to Ehud to Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola Jair, who are minor judges, Jephthah, uh, Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon, who are just ba- briefly mentioned as judges, and then Samson, and Samson is the worst. So you start with Othniel, about whom nothing negative is said, and you go straight down to Samson, about whom nothing good is said. And what is that telling you? That as they went through these cycles over a period of about 300 years, one generation after another became worse than the generation before them. And it affects everybody. It affects their leaders because the leaders are coming out of the culture of the people. And we see that today. We have leaders in Austin. Well, we have leaders in Houston. We have leaders in Austin. We have leaders in Washington, D.C., that are as bad, if not worse, than the people out there in the country. And they have all drunk of the same poison well of postmodern relativism. And we expect them to do, gr- to do well. There are a few strong Christians there. We need to pray for them all the time, but the rest of them are not. They have compromised their souls in so many different ways we can't imagine. And so we are in serious trouble and that's what the what happened during the time of the judges. And so we'll go through each, each one of these to see their good points as well as their bad points. So the arrow there shows this deterioration. And then we come to the end of the book, and there are these two uh, appendices, sort of an epilogue that has two different episodes. The first involves the paganization of the priests. So the... Leadership is paganized. They are acting like Canaanites. And I'm going to use that word all the way through. What makes you a pagan? A pagan is someone who rejects the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They say that if you're a, a Jew or a Christian, that it, and even if you're not a, a, a believer in the gospel technically, that you're not a pagan because you believe in the Judeo-Christian worldview. And others will say that Islam is not pagan. But I differ with that because in all of my studies of Allah and Islam, Allah and the revelation of the Quran to Muhammad is very, very similar to what happened with Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. And it is not only pagan. I believe Allah is just another name for Lucifer, for Satan, uh, for the ruler of this world. Uh, uh, Allah is not a their version of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob loves the Jewish people and the God of Islam hates the Jewish people. They can't be the same person. So we see the a paganization, that is where you you adopt a totally anti-God, anti-biblical view of reality. You reject the Judeo-Christian worldview, and you go with uh, polytheism, and you go with uh, moral relativism and everything else, and it just breaks down everything in society. It breaks down the leadership. They're indicted and described and indicted in 3.7 to 16.31, and then the first episode is the paganization of the priest. And that's the story of this priest who has the concubine who gets gang raped uh, in Gibeah of Saul, uh, where Saul will be late, later on. And that's described in chapter 17 and then in chapter 18 because he's, as Dan is moving from the Shephala, from the coastal region across to uh, through the hill country of Samaria and then north. Uh, as they make that move, they run across this this priest there, who's this, set up a little shrine there in Gibeah, and they bribe him to go with them, and so he goes with them and goes up to the north, and they set up a, a pagan shrine up in up in Dan, up up in the north, and then the um, then chapters nineteen and 20, 21 talks about the paganization of the people, and you have this horrible. Uh, revolt and rebellion that involves uh, a civil war against the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, it's just sordid. It's evil, but it's because they have rejected God. So the theme of, of Judges is that if you reject God, if you reject the Bible, and you worship anything other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his word, then the result is going to be the destruction of yourself, the destruction of your marriage, the destruction of your family, the destruction of your country. And this, this book is the pathology of what happens to a nation that rejects God and how they self-destruct. So in Judges two one, we we'll just briefly cover this because this sets the stage for the rest of the book. Uh, at Judges 2, one after you have this lengthy description of 36 verses in Judges 1 going through each of the different tribes describing what happened, starts off with the tribe of Judah. They have great victories. They defeat Adonai Bezek. They defeat the Canaanites down in Hebron. And then you get this sad note in verse 21, but the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites, Who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now, that tells you two things. The first thing that that tells you is that the Benjamites had to compromise and live with and alongside the Jebusites in Salem, in Jerusalem. They were. Uh, They were going to end up assimilating all of their beliefs and everything else. And the second thing it tells you is that when the writer of Judges wrote this, David had not yet captured Jerusalem and defeated the Jebusites. And the Jebusites and the Benjamites were still living together in what later became the city City of David. And so um, that becomes a problem. And then you get down... Into verse 27, we read, however, Ma- Ma- Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shon and all of those areas. And it, it came to pass that, when, is- that when-, when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute but did not completely drive them out. They're, they're disobeying God. They're doing it the way they want to. Uh, Ephraim doesn't drive out the Canaanites in Gezer. Zebulun doesn't drive out the inhabitants of Ketron in up in the northern uh, Galilee area. Asher doesn't do it. None of them do it until you get down to the point where Dan not only doesn't drive anybody out, they get driven out and they have to go find a new homeland, which comes up at the end of the book. So as we get to that point, then the writer of of Judges tells us this in verse 1 Then the angel of the Lord that's the preincarnate Lord Jesus Christ came up from Gilgal to Bochim Now Bochim is named because of what happens here Gilgal is an important location because when the Israelites came into the land under Joshua and they crossed over the Jordan River, and they came into the land, they stopped and they had a covenant renewal ceremony with uh, uh, with Yahweh, where they renew the vows of their covenant there at Gilgal. And so, this is a very important spot uh, in the history of Israel. And now this is going to be a spot where uh, they are going to reveal that they have completely violated that that covenant with God. So the angel of the Lord comes uh, up from Gilgal, where, where the angel of the Lord is given directions. That was uh, Joshua's command and control center. And he comes to Bochim, and he reminds them of his of his faithfulness. He says, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And what have they done? They've just broken the covenant left and right. And he goes on to say, And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. And what have they done? They've made covenants with the people in the land. You shall, and he went on, the command was, You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? See, God doesn't hold back. Why have you done this? What's your motivation? What's really going on here? And then he says, Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. This is divine discipline on Israel, divine judgment on Israel, that they are going to go through these cycles of judgment because they disobeyed God. God said, Okay, I'm going to leave them there. I'm going to leave them alive, and they are going to uh, be a real thorn in your flesh they're going to be a major problem for you and their gods will trap you then we get down um, past that uh and we get down to verse five they called the name of that place bochim why because all the children of israel lifted up their voices and wept that's at the end of verse four they are you know, they're like the kid that got caught, and he's not sorry he did what he did. He's sorry he got caught, and he's going to be penalized. And so they weep. It's all emotion. And then they called the name of that place Bochim. They did sacrifice there to the Lord, and when Joshua dismissed the people, the children of Israel went to their own inheritance to possess the land. Then we're told about the death of Joshua in 7 down through 10 and the death of Joshua's generation, the founders, as it were. And once that founding generation is off the scene, then the next generation begins to uh, lose its integrity. And what did they do? Verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Now, what does it mean to do evil? Does it mean to be a racist? Does it mean to be a a drunk? Does evil mean that you're just irresponsible? None of the above. Evil in these contexts is always defined contextually as going into idolatry. What's the first commandment in the Mosaic law? You shall have no other gods before me. Idolatry is prohibited because the law of the land is between God and Israel in that covenant. And so what happens is they, they break that covenant. They say they abandon God. They reject him, and they go after other gods. And that is what evil is. Evil is turning your back on God. Evil isn't committing adultery. Evil isn't being a drug addict. Evil isn't being a murderer. Evil is turning your back on God. David never committed evil. He was a man after God's own heart. But he committed a lot of sins. So the Bible defines evil in a very different way than the way most of us use the term. And then in verse 12, it says, and they forsook God, and I changed it to a better translation, they abandoned God. That's how that should be understood. They abandoned the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served Baal and the Astros. Now, what did we just learn in our study about uh, the, the demons and the fallen angels in Deuteronomy? That the idols are, are demons. The idols are, are, are manifestations, a physical representation of a real entity that is a spiritual entity that is a demon. And so they're worshiping demons. That's exactly what Moses warned them against in Deuteronomy. They abandon the Lord, and they are serving the Baals and the Ashtoreths. So that's in verse 13. And so what we read in verse 14 is, The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. He delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. If we have bad government and we are defeated by enemies, it is because God has brought that upon us because we have rejected God as a culture. We're not looking to God anymore. And so uh, God despoiled them and sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. And that's in a military context, but let me tell you, Christians are not standing before our enemies in this nation. And they're not because we're under discipline, because so many Christians today have really compromised with the world that they are spiritually impotent, and they have bought into moral relativism, and they are not applying Scripture at all in their thinking. And so we go on to read, verse 15, whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them. That is, whenever they went out to battle, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges. See, that's grace. God raised up judges and delivered them. That was the role of the judge. He's a military uh, leader who delivers, frees them from the oppression of their enemies, delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they would not listen to their judges. As they played the harlot with other gods, see, this is true spiritual adultery, is when you're not obedient and faithful to god and you're worshiping other gods that's what spiritual adultery is it is violating the first commandment and so they don't listen to the judges they're unfaithful to god of abraham isaac and jacob they bow down to the false gods the idols the demons and they turn quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the lord and when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity for their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more, cor- more corruptly than their fathers. So the, the cycles just get worse and worse. And so we see this basic cycle. First, they're disobedient. And then that leads to divine discipline. And then that leads eventually to they turn to God and cry for deliverance, and God delivers them. And then they go to disobedience. And you just see one cycle after another. And the cycles go down. It's a deteriorating line. And that's what happens under the paganism. In chapter 3 we read, now these are the nations which the Lord left For the purpose that he would test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. So these are the next generations. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, these are the enemies they left, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, Sidonians, Hivites, uh, who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, and Mount Baal, Hermon, to the entrance of Hamath, and they're left that he might test Israel by them. So we're going to have a testing, folks, because of these people who are evil and these people who are gaining power and have been gaining power for some time. This is, just didn't start this year. This has been going on for, for decades. Its roots go back to the first part of the 20th century. So we, we're being tested by them. And verse 5, thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites. They're just getting cozy with the enemy, and they are going to uh, absorb all of their values, and that's how they become paganized. They took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods, so the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. What? Look at that verse. So the children of Israel did evil, so it's a conclusion. Why? Because they served other gods. That's my point. Evil is serving other gods they forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. So see, this takes us down to to 3, 6, and that verse 7 is actually the beginning of the next section, which is the first judge who is is Othniel. And Othniel is... uh, one of the great judges. He's the first judge, and he's the one who is going to uh, be the first deliverer that comes up, and he is going to end up marrying uh, Caleb's uh, Caleb's daughter. And so when we look at him, uh, he is a very positive individual, and, uh, and his name means God is my protector. So we're not told a whole lot about him. It just... His story just goes from verse 7 down to verse 11, but everything that's said about him is fine. He's Caleb's younger brother, and, uh, or he's the nephew of Caleb. It's worded weird. Everybody debates this. He's Othniel, the son of Kenaz. So Canaz is, Kenaz is his father, but is Kenaz Caleb's younger brother or is Othniel Caleb's younger brother? So there's a lot of debate there. But he, I believe, is Caleb's nephew. And we're told the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That is not filling him. That's just giving him the ability. And he judged Israel. He's their, he's their leader. He's their chieftain. And he is going to deliver them from the oppressors. Then the next judge is going to be Ehud. Now, here's a map. We're going to see a lot of maps. We're going to see lots of different things this time that we didn't see the last time because visuals have gotten so much better. And this is Israel. So you have to understand the geography of Israel. Down here is the Dead Sea. And just to the north, they've got a little uh, cutout here so you can't see the edge. But just to the, just to the west, actually, it's about 18 miles, but it's all uphill, because the Dead Sea is about 1,200, 1,300 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem is about uh, 3,000 feet above sea level. So that's, that's quite a hike in 17 miles. You're just going you know, almost straight, straight up. And so you can always get your bearings there. The area north of Jerusalem is the hill country of Samaria, and the area south is the hill country of Judah. And then the body of water up to the north is the Sea of Galilee, and the Jordan River flows from the Sea of Galilee south down into the Dead Sea. So that gives you your basic orientation. And then to the west of the Sea of Galilee, you have a valley that runs from the northwest to the southeast called the Jezreel Valley. It's also called the Valley of Esdolon, and it is called the Valley of Megiddo because Megiddo is on a hill right also right behind this cutout here. And uh, the word for hill is Har. The word for Megiddo is Megiddo. And when you put it together, it's Har Megiddo or in English, Armageddon and this is where the staging area for the battle of armageddon is going to take place and so this is this just gives us a little bit of an orientation and what we see is you know Athniel Oth- is dealing with uh this uh invasion by uh kushan Rishathaim, who is the king of mesopotamia and he's going to conquer them and rule for 8 years and then is going to deliver them. Then the next guy is Ehud, and at this uh, time, it is the king of Moab, and Moab is down here to the uh, southeast of the Dead Sea in this general area just to the east of the Dead Sea, what is now part of modern Jordan, and that is uh, Ehud is going to, or excuse me, Eglon is the king. And he dominates probably the Judah in the southern part here, and Ehud is going to deliver them. And I still love the title for that that I'll use again, that at the, that Eglon is quite obese, and he goes to the outhouse, and that is where Ehud attacks him, and, and Lefty kills Fatty in the outhouse. So you'll remember that story. And then we have just this one verse of Shamgar, who is very interesting. He's a warrior, the son of Anat, which is a Ph- Philistine god, okay? And and actually, this, this term, the sons of Anat, this was an elite uh, special operations unit in the Egyptian army. And his name is not a Hebrew name, and he kills 600 men of the Philistines, and he delivers Israel. So we don't know anything about him spiritually, but we do know that things must have been so bad in Israel that God had to take a, a, um, uh, a Hurrian soldier probably uh, who, who is a mercenary serving in the Egyptian army to deliver Israel from the Philistines because nobody nobody in Israel was ready to do it. And so God has to raise up a woman. A lot of people. We'll get into some important issues about the role of women as we see in the scriptures. And Deborah is a judge, and she is a prophetess. And we're going to get into some fun stuff there because a lot of people don't understand what a prophet or prophetess is when we look at the language. You, you, we've all done this many times in Chronicles that you have some of these musicians who prophesied with the lyre and with musical instruments. And so if you think of prophecy not as the role of the prophet who is bringing a lawsuit against Israel, but as someone who sets the word of God to music and sings, then it makes sense because Miriam, who is Moses' sister, is a prophetess. And the context where that's mentioned is the song of deliverance that, that she sang. Okay? And then you come to Deborah. She's called the prophetess, and in Judges chapter 5 is her song of victory, and you have a couple of other examples like that. So they're not teaching, they're not pastors, they're not spiritual leaders, but God used them in incredible ways, but not like the evangelical feminists think today. So we'll look at this. It's a great story, and it takes place up in this area, up in the Jezreel Valley, because this is... uh, uh, this is where there's the river that flows through here is just below Mount Mount Carmel, and it's the Kishon River, and this is where that battle takes place with Deborah and Barak, and uh, Sisera, who is the uh, commander of the Canaanite forces, escapes. He's exhausted at the end of battle, and this is, is when uh, Jael is going to... Um, uh, take a tent peg and drive it through his temple, and he gets nailed. And that's the end of the battle, and the Israelites win. So then we go from there. Let me see, this map is Deborah and Barak, so this is the area a little bit larger that you see, the valley of uh, of Jezreel, and the Canaanites are coming down from this City, I haven't visited that with a tour group in about uh, 12 years. Hatzor, and they come down along the shore of Galilee and they're dominating. This is the breadbasket of Israel. This is where all of their grain and everything is grown and they're under the oppression uh, of the Canaanites and Deborah and Barak deliver them. And then we come to Gideon and so many people know the story of Gideon and Gideon, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and uh, as a result, of the, the Midianites have been oppressing them. And we read in uh, chapter 6, verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, and his son Gideon is threshing wheat in the, in the uh, uh, winepress. And the angel of the Lord says to, to him, uh, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, well, if the Lord's with me, why don't we have victory? And the angel of the Lord says, well, I'm going to send you against. It's very clear. God gives him straight directions. You are going to go follow my directions, and you're going to go defeat the Midianites. And so the next day, Gideon's thinking, well, maybe that's not such a good idea. Did he really tell me that? He's trying to get out of it. He's not trying to find God's will by laying out the fleece. He's trying to avoid God's will by laying out the fleece. He's trying to come up with something that's impossible for God to do. So he says, I'm going to put the fleece out there. And if the dew comes in the morning and the fleece is dry and the ground is wet, then I'm going to... I'm going to know that's what you want me to do. And the next morning he gets up, and the fleece is dry, and the ground is wet. And he goes, well, let's try this again. Tomorrow morning, if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, uh, then I'll know you want me to do this. And, of course, the, the, the ground is dry, the fleece is wet, and he's he's stuck. But he's been trying to avoid God's will. So he leads the people into battle. It's a great story. He steps up to the plate. He is the valiant warrior, defeats the Midianites. Afterwards, the people want to make him king. This is a high-water mark in his humility. He says, no, I'm not going to be king. But what does he do? After he gives us some thought, he says, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. And he has a son, and he names his son Abimelech, which means my father's king. There's so much humor in this book. There's all these little puns and all these things that are going on in the Hebrew to catch our attention, to point out that, see, Gideon's got a few flaws here, and then he puts up this ephod that is a golden jeweled ephod. It looks beautiful. It is a priestly garment. And he says, this is the God who delivered us. And so he leads the people into idolatry. But God says he's a great man of faith over in Hebrews 11. Doesn't that encourage you in your spiritual life? And then Abimelech has his own set. He's the. Uh, we're going to find out a lot about him in the next couple of chapters after that. And he's just a real piece of work and is finally killed. And then we have in chapter 10, these minor judges, Tola Jair, and then Israel's oppressed again, and there's this uh, kind of a, he's kind of a brigand, he's an outcast, he's a son of a prostitute, he's not everybody's favorite person, Uh, he just doesn't have the right pedigree, and he's out in the boonies, and the Spirit of God is going to work on him to use him to deliver uh, Israel from uh, from their op- oppression from the Ammonites. And he doesn't know much about the Bible. They didn't have their own copy of the scriptures. None of these people, so they're said they just making it up as they go along, and they've got all these superstition, like a lot of Baptists and Methodists and other Christians that I know who think that the Bible really does say cleanliness is next to godliness because they've never read the Bible, and they have all these pagan ideas that have infiltrated their thinking. And so he thinks he's got to give some special sacrifice to God. Now remember we've studied this before in relation to Mary and Joseph in the inn in Bethlehem that the typical house had sort of an they had an opening we would call it a carport maybe where their good animals could come inside out of the inclement weather and they didn't want their sheep getting sick or anything else so so they had animals that sort of slept inside a part of the house And so he makes this vow to God that whatever comes out of the door to greet me when I come back from the battle, I'm going to sacrifice that as a burnt offering. He uses that technical language. I will make an ola to you. And when he comes home, his daughter comes running out of the house, pushes the sheep aside, and she runs past him. She's the first one out the door. And the text just says he did to her as he vowed. And a lot of evangelicals are squeamish about that, but about a human sacrifice was very common in all of these Canaanite religions at that time, so we just see that each one of these judges is acting more and more like the Canaanites around them and then the last major judge is going to be Samson and Samson. Uh, he's disrespectful of his parents, he's angry, he's self-absorbed, he's supposed to have a Nazarite vow. And we see all these little episodes that, that happen. He's not, as a Nazarite, he's not even supposed to touch grapes or touch a grapevine. And he, what does he do? He goes out and he's going through the vineyard. Well, he's not supposed to be there. And then he has this wrestling match and he kills a lion. And then the lion's carcass is there. And as a Nazarite, he's not supposed to touch a carcass. That's, that's unclean. And he goes back and he finds this carcass that has gotten hard. Now, carcasses don't get hard. So we know that God had something to do with this. this, this had, it, it, the carcass has become hard. And in the abdominal cavity, the bees have, have, have just filled it up with a honeycomb. And so he gets into this carcass, which he's not supposed to touch, and he gets all the honey out. So he, everything that he does is a violation of his vow. He is a womanizer. He is a first-class spiritual loser, and he dictates terms to his parents to go get that Philistine woman for me. I want to marry her. And he has absolutely no control over, over anything. And eventually, he succumbs to De, Delilah's charms, and she keeps uh, uh going after him to tell tell her what the secret of his strength is. And he says it's his long hair, and so she calls the, bar, the Philistine barbers, and they cut his hair, and that's it for Samson. And they arrest him, and they blind him, and they put him in, in, in the temple of, uh, of Dagon. And so he then calls upon God to give him strength one more time, and he pushes the pillars down, and the temple falls down. And it's interesting because he does this about the same time that Samuel is alive and, and you have the battles with the Philistines going on in in 1 Samuel chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6. So that all overlaps. Then you get to uh, chapter 17. We've already talked about that some. This is the apostasy of Micah who hires this apostate priest who turns out later to be the grandson of Moses. And uh, he sets up his own little shrine. And then the tribe of Dan comes through there looking for a new place to go. And they bribe uh, that priest to go with him. And that's just, just a horrible thing. And you get down to chapter 19, and that's the uh, the Levite's concubine. And I'm going to go back to the main chart here. Oh, I went past it. There we go. So we're down into this third section There, we get into chapter nineteen, and we see the the problem with the people in nineteen twenty and twenty one, and it's just this horrible, horrible situation as the the Jews are just killing each other, and and they're all the eleven other tribes want to destroy Benjamin, and they're on the edge of doing it when God intervenes and it's just it's just horrific and this is what happens when a culture gives themselves over to paganism and re- rejects god so we will have a lot of fun going through judges it is mostly narrative you don't get into some real heavy theology or anything it's all about studying how a culture turns from a spiritually victorious culture at the beginning when they have conquered the land, they're moving in. God has done all these great things, that first generations, the, the children of the Exodus generation, they are obedient to God, but then compromise comes in, and eventually it erodes the integrity of the of the nation, and they're, they're worshiping all the other gods. This goes on for about 300 years. And this is the setup for for Samuel because Samuel is going to show that even though they have been unfaithful, God's going to provide the deliverer in David and the son of David, who is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great picture of God's grace, and we learn a lot about God's grace as we go through this. So we'll come back next time and begin to look at uh, the first part of Judges. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this. As difficult as it is and as pessimistic as this appears, we're thankful for the lessons that are here because they teach us that as believers, we're not too different from the few faithful believers at that time. And at later times, we think of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We think of Elijah and Elisha. We know that there are times when the remnant is very small. And in our time, the numbers of believers who are truly committed to your word are, are, have dwindled. And yet, we must remain faithful. And Father, we just pray that you would keep us focused on your word. And we pray for your grace in this nation that we would see a turnaround, but we know that we may be in for a season of divine discipline where we reap the whirlwind because of the sins of the nation. We pray that we might be steadfast even in those times. In Christ's name, amen.